Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you would just bow your heads with me once more, um, let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus, um, you've given us so many good things in your word. And... Uh, even as we hear today, commands spoken to your people. Um, you have commanded us even today in Jesus Christ. And so I pray you help our hearts to understand uh, the tension that lies in our salvation and the grace that changes us and calls us to something wonderful. And we pray for all of this in your name. Amen. So there are a few words more challenging to our fallen, broken hearts than the words do you know why I pulled you over today? It's been asked to me a couple times. I'm assuming it's been asked to you. Uh, it's been asked to my mom a lot. And uh, every time it happens, there's a slew of responses we can have to that, right? We can know exactly why they pulled us over, but we're not quite sure we want to offer up that we know why they're pulling us over. Or uh, we can begin to think through any of the possibilities that could have happened. We could just start confessing all of the things that we maybe could have done in that moment, hoping that we get it right and they let us go. Or you can be certain that you did nothing wrong and you could rest on your laurels proving that you did not violate the law in any way, shape, or form. You see, when we encounter a law, it forces our hearts to wrestle with what it means to have potentially broken it. And just as a simple speeding ticket might incite that, I imagine for many of us, there's a greater unrest or a greater arrogance or a greater uncertainty when we encounter God's law or what it looks like to obey God in general. And in the book of Deuteronomy, this is our fourth week in it, what Moses has been doing up until this point is preparing God's people to hear God's law. And today in our text, we transition into God's law. He's going to begin to declare to his people who are about to enter into the promised land the laws that God's people should obey. And here's just a sampling of uh, what Moses is going to talk about. So in 4 verse 44 and 45, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Skip down to chapter 5 verse 1. We're going to be skipping around a lot today, so again... Bible in hand is, is a great tool for this series. 5 verse 1, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak you in your hearing today. You shall learn to do them and be careful to do them. 5 verse 31 says this, But you, God speaking to Moses here, stand by me and I will tell you the whole commandment, the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I'm giving you to possess. Also in verse 33, you shall walk in all the way the Lord your God commanded you. Or nope, not verse 33, 6 verse 1, sorry. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, which the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you're going over to possess. And so the people are now beginning to be confronted with this law. And whenever we encounter laws, we can feel consciously shameful, we can feel dubious about what we maybe did, or we can dig in our heels and arrogantly boast in innocence. But when it comes to encountering God, what Scripture holds out to us is actually the possibility to have a heart at rest before God and His law. 
And part of that comes when we understand why God gives us commands. Why would God give us, you see those words repeated, rules, statutes, and commandments? Because that's what this is about. Deuteronomy uh, in Greek means just the second law. And so we're in the part of Scripture where we need to understand that. And so we're going to be looking at uh, a text that covers three chapters, the end of chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And we're not going to look at all of it. But what I want to do is give us just a brief feel so that we might be able to answer the question if someone asks, why does God give us commands? Why does God give us laws? And so again, look and see if you can answer this for yourself. Chapter 5, verse 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and it might go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 5, verse 29 Oh, so this is God talking, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Skip down to verse 33. You shall walk in the way the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it might go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 3. That you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's sons, keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 6, verse 18, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And lastly, chapter 6, verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And so Moses is beginning to share rules, commands, and what he wants them to know, what he wants us to know today, is that God commands us because God is for our good always. God wants us to live long in the land of promise that he is going to give to us. All God's commands are for our good. That's what Moses is saying repeatedly to these people, which means that there would only be two reasons where people like Israel, people who have been redeemed by God, who are being spoken to by God, would not obey. And the first is that they don't think God is able to provide this. They don't think God is strong enough, competent enough, honorable enough to actually bring them good in the land. But at this point in the sermon, we realize Moses has spent the first 30 minutes saying, you can't possibly think that. Look at all this God has done for you. He is more than capable of giving you what he's promising to give you. And so we see God's miraculous covenant-keeping power throughout history, and so the people of Israel have been reminded that God is able. God can do that. It's not on the fault of God, that we disobey. Which means that as good and wonderful as God's rules are, as able and effective as God's rules are, what they highlight is a problem in our own heart. What they highlight is that Israel has a problem of obedience. Moses is after our hearts today. He's after the hearts of Israel, and he's after your heart. Moses wants us to see this, that grace always changes our hearts. And a heart struck by grace sees beauty 
inside of God's commands. Grace changes our hearts, and when our hearts are struck by grace, we see beauty in God's commands. Now, you would say this is the Old Testament, right? We have this division between Old and New Testament. Sometimes we look uh, despairingly at the Old Testament. But this is, it. this is what the New Testament says. The Apostle John says this. He says, this is the love of God, that we obey his commandment, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's 1 John 5, verse 3. And as you heard what Devin read for you, our passage today uh, includes some of the most famous texts, not only when it comes to Christian tradition and history and teaching, but also some of the most famous texts in terms of the New Testament authors calling us to consider what is being spoken today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of focus on Deuteronomy's chapter 5 and 6 today, and we're going to try to discern why it is that this law is so important to both the Jews that Moses was speaking to thousands of years ago and to us who are sitting here today. And so the three things we're going to see about the nature of this law, the law that Moses is now beginning to expound, and and these are the three things. We're going to see the shape of the law, the heart of the law, and the fulfillment of the law. And so Moses begins this passage by reminding the people of what happened at Mount Horeb. Right? There have been kind of two significant events we've looked at in Deuteronomy. There was Mount Horeb, where after God redeemed them, they brought them to a mountain, and God gave them the law. And there was also Kadesh Barnea, where God took them to the door of the promised land, and they refused to go in, and they were punished because of it. And so now he's going to remind them of what happened at Horeb, where God gave what is literally in Hebrew the ten words. It's not the ten commands, it's the ten words, but historically we've called them as a church the Ten Commandments. And so he begins to remind them of this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. Now, if you've been with us, there's a problem here, isn't there? And that's that Moses did make a commandment with their fathers. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 27, he was reminding the people of the covenant he made with the fathers. And the other issue is that most of the people who are listening to this sermon today weren't alive at Horeb. They hadn't even been born yet. Remember, God brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and brought them to Mount Horeb, gave them the law, but then at Kadesh Barnea, they disobeyed, and that generation spent 40 years of punishment in the wilderness so that they might die off. And this generation is a new generation, a generation that was under 20 years old at the time of the Exodus, and their children. And now Moses is like 130, and so is Moses just like losing his marbles at this point? Is he just forgetting everything that took place? No, Moses is stressing a distinction here. And the distinction is that even though God graciously brought Israel out of Egypt, even though at Horeb, God graciously gave Israel the law, each generation of Israel is responsible to respond to grace on their own. Just as the failures of their father does not doom them to failure. In the same way, the obedience of their fathers does not mean that they would only be obedient. The responsibility 
is always on the individual to respond to God's grace on their own. And the same is true today for us, something that we um, in a Christian or post-Christian world need to be really mindful of. Just because your parents were Christian does not mean that you have responded to grace properly. Just because you were born in America does not mean that you are by blood a Christian. Just because you know that Jesus existed and died does not mean that you believe the gospel. To be a Christian means that you respond to God's grace on your own in Jesus Christ. That you take initiative and respond. And so what does it look like to respond to God's grace in a way that is right? Well, Moses has constantly been hammering two ways in the book of Deuteronomy, and that is faith, know that God is God, and then responding with a changed life of obedience. Faith and obedience. Now, the changed life isn't what saves them, and we're going to talk more about that next week, but the point is is that those who have faith exhibit signs of a transformation of grace. Grace changes you. And knowing that, Moses now begins to recite the Ten Commandments. And this is where we begin to see the shape of the law, which is our first point today. The shape of the law. So we're going to read a large passage. Stay with me. We are in Deuteronomy 4, or 5, verses 4 through 22. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, here thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your, who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words, and now we're back to Moses speaking, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So that's the Ten Commandments. And I'm assuming that you've at least heard of the Ten Commandments at some point in your life, that they exist, and maybe for you this is the first time you've actually read them. But what's important is to to say, outside of the mere ethics that are in the Ten Commandments, what do they teach us? Why is this so important to be recorded here in such a summarized form? Well, the first thing it teaches us, it teaches us two things, is that when God rescued Israel out of slavery, he expected that the grace he provided in bringing them out would not only change their circumstance, but it would actually change them. You see, often we think that the greatest problem in our life is merely the external circumstances that we have. And you can imagine the people of Israel thought this way, right? When they're in Egypt, they say, if only we were brought out of Egypt, we would obey God and live inside his blessing. And then it becomes, if only we could get into the promised land and eat those big grapes, we would obey God and enjoy his blessing. And then in the promised land, it became, if only we had the temple, we would obey God and enjoy his covenant blessing. And then when Israel's enemies come and judge them and pull them away into captivity, the cry became, if only we were brought out of exile, we would obey God and keep his commands. But what the Ten Commandments show us is that there's a larger problem that God has come to deal with than our circumstances. Our circumstances matter, and God wants to deal with those, but he realizes the greater problem is inside of our own hearts. God knows unless the inner person is changed, you will ultimately find yourself back in circumstances of hardship, of pain, and of death. But God's grace makes a way for change. Part of our salvation includes a call to live out the implications of that salvation. We saw this when we went through Ephesians, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul reminded us of this change where he says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you, you who have been brought from darkness into light, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. When we put on grace given to us by God, we become distinct in grace. Grace changes us. And the second thing we see here is the way in which grace changes us, right? There are two primary ways that these Ten Commandments get at. It changes how we treat God, we treat Him uniquely, and it changes how we treat others. We treat them lovingly, or we seek to protect them. It changes how we view the God of the Bible, because that's how the Ten Commandments start. The most important part of the Ten Commandments isn't a commandment at all. It's the prelude to it where God begins to speak to his people, and before he ever commands them, what does he say? He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Which means whenever we encounter God's commands, 
they are not first and foremost about morality. They're first and foremost about redemption. But when we have been redeemed, it changes our morality. Being redeemed by God, being brought out of slavery, being purchased for something new means that we now begin to treat God differently and we begin to treat others differently because we've been ransomed out of, out of a former way of life. And you'll notice that the Ten Commandments reflect this in and of themselves. Commandments 1 through 3, no other God, no idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain. They all deal with specifically how we respond to the God who saves us. But then in commandment 4, here Moses is adding a little more than what we see in Exodus at the first giving of the Ten Commandments. Because it's this pivot command. And what you notice when he talks about the Sabbath is it actually pulls all of the individual redemption that Israel experienced and it begins to apply it to the lives of those who are around you, right? He says, God brought you out of Egypt into his rest. Therefore, you rest on the Sabbath. And not just you, you make sure your ox rests. You make sure your servants rest. You make sure your sons rest and your daughters rest and the sojourner rest. You invite people into the rest that God's redemption has provided for you. You see, the fourth commandment is this pivot point, even for us today, where we look at the wonderful things that Christ has done for us and it pulls it into our day-to-day -day relationships with those who are around us. And so what does the shape of the law look like in the Ten Commandments? It looks like honoring God as Lord and protecting and serving other people. So what we talk about here is glorifying God and loving others. And the Ten Commandments are huge in the history of Christianity. But what's interesting is Moses moves on from these so quickly. In fact, you almost get this sense in the text that Moses uses this as just a stepping stone to what he really wants the people to know. Look at how he reminds them of this in verses 22 through 33. Look at kind of how Moses speaks about the commandments and what we're left to follow. These words, that's the ten words, the ten commandments. The Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain in the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added, no more. In other words, when God audibly spoke, that was all he said. The first speaking of God was just those ten. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and all your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. See, that's what we looked at last week. Like God shows us his glory through his word. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God, any more we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And you speak to us, all the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear it, and we will do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of the people which they have spoken to you. 
And they're right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and say to them, that's say to the Israelites, return to your tents. But you, Moses, stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside from the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you are going to possess. I said, did you see what the Ten Commandments really set up? The people knew. Moses knew. God knew that the ten words spoken at Sinai were not the only words that God would speak. There were going to be more words, many words, weightier words, holy words. You see, the Ten Commandments are a separate and chief law. It's not that you as an Israelite, you get the choice of all of the laws to follow or the Ten Commandments. It was a summary of everything else that was going to come. Everything which follows in Deuteronomy applies the principles of worshiping God and protecting other, but it does so in greater detail. One commentator said that the Ten Commandments are just the whole obligations of the law in embryo. As Moses continues to preach it, they all grow out of this. They become more mature, they become more detailed, so that you might be able to have greater clarity, Israel, what it looks like to honor God and to love others. Moses moves beyond the Ten Commandments almost as soon as he talks about them because they are just a summary of the greatness of God's holy commands that he's about to give. And Jesus knew this too. Look at the encounter Jesus had with a rich young man in Mark chapter 10. Verses uh, 17 through, uh, let's go through 22. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Having Deuteronomy 5 ringing in our ears, look at what Jesus says. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so here Jesus is saying that getting eternal life Getting the promise of God's blessing is so much more than just a simple summary of commands. And it's true that Jesus doesn't give all of the commandments there, but it's true that the ones listed plus one, right? You lack one thing, it still doesn't add up to the ten. There's something bigger at stake, and it has to do with what Jesus highlights in Mark 10, a unique devotion to him. And when Moses and Moses alone stood on the mountain and spoke with God, God continued to express to him the very heart of the law. 
the way in which God's people would not only show conformity to God, but would show relational communion with God. And in 5 verse 27, Moses is saying, you said on that day, the great terrible fire was speaking to you. You said, you go up, you hear everything God has to say, and you come down and you tell us all those things, and we will obey it. We will do it. Well, now in 6 verse 1, when we look at that in a second, you'll see Moses is like, these are the words. You said you would obey these words, and now I'm giving you the whole law. And this is where we begin to see not just the shape of the law, but our second point, the heart of the law. What lies behind the rules and regulations that God is giving to Israel? And see, when it comes to rules, we generally encounter them as cold or as impersonal. But as we begin to read this heart of the law that Moses is about to give, I want you to notice to the language of affection that Moses is using and see if that helps us understand what God might be after in all of these commands. This is Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, these rules, these statutes, these commandments, shall be on your heart. What is God after? In everything he speaks, he is after your heart. A proper response to God's grace of being brought out of slavery in Israel and being brought out of sin in Jesus is that we would obey. But a proper response to God's grace is not just obedience, but obedience motivated by love. You see, there's a lie which Israel needed to be made aware of, a lie which the young rich man in Mark 10 needed to be made aware of, And a lie that I think each and every one of us need to be made aware of today. And the lie is this, that obeying God and loving God are two different things. But that's not the case. Moses is bringing both of those together. If you are obeying God, you must love God. And if you love God, you must obey God. And many of us hide behind an outward obedience of God. And yet our heart has no affection towards him. To use languages like love God is so foreign to us. And then others of us, we love God, but we don't want to obey God in certain circumstances, in certain things that God asks us to do. But Moses is saying you can't do this, you can't divorce it. Now certainly in our lives, love and obedience aren't always married like we want them to be. One day it will be. One beautiful day we will only lovingly obey God instantly and simultaneously. But sometimes, love is the on-road to obedience, and sometimes obedience is the the on-ramp to love. But to miss the connection between the two is to miss what Moses is saying here about the law. The heart of the law is a command to love. Isn't that a weird 
law. Moses is saying, this is the summary. This is the commandment in the plural or in the singular, which I'm going to give you today. This is the chief part of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. Jesus himself echoes this in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked, What commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, so this is something, this Deuteronomy uh, 6 verse 5 is called the Shema. It was something that was super important that it was part of the daily prayer life of Jews. So the scribe coming knew what Jesus was going to say here, but look at what he says. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So if you've been in the church long enough, Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12 or Moses' words in Deuteronomy 6 kind of become white noise. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus adds also with all your strength. But do you realize the audacity of what is being commanded here? The first part demanding exclusive affection. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other God. If you want promise, if you want blessing, if you want deliverance, this is the only shot. We saw last week where uh, Moses says, um, the Lord our God is the God in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. And what does that God command of us? That we love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. I worked with student ministry in high school, junior high, and college for most of my ministry career. And one of the primary things people come and talk to you about, whether you want to or not, is relationships. That's just what they want to talk about. And most of the time, there's this kind of disconnect where one party has affection for another party and it's not reciprocated and you have to counsel them through it. And you know what's never occurred to me? To just say, well, did you go command them to love you? Just try that. Just go up and say, love me! We generally don't think of things that way. But isn't this what God is commanding? It's a command. The chief command. Jesus doesn't damper it. He's not saying this is the first suggestion. He holds the tension. Love and obedience are tied together in God's eyes. Which means this. Our root problem means that if we do not obey this, we are disobeying. To not love God is the chief ground for disobedience. But if we do love God, does that mean that our love for God is nothing more than forced obedience like we obey a traffic light or a speed limit sign? It's not what happens when people try to command us. That's not true with the God of the Bible. And here's why. Here's why God's command to love is the most emotional command you will ever receive in your life. God's command to love can only be responded to joyfully, 
freely and obediently when he commands us with his grace. The power in which God elicits a heart to respond to his command is the power of grace. When we see the grace God gives us to awaken our hearts to the lovable, beautiful God, then our only response is love. Grace changes our hearts. Just as we cannot separate obedience from love, God cannot separate his love for us from his free offer of grace. Grace motivates everything. Grace is what comes in the form of a command, but is a beautiful command, a lovely command. And in verses 7 through 19 of chapter 6, Moses is now going to show them how grace motivates everything, how the grace God gives us, if we lose sight of grace, obedience will always be hard, but when grace is near to us in our hearts, things will always be a little bit easier. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 through 19. You shall teach them that what's them, them are the rules, diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They should be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go and take possession of the good land the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. I love this passage not only because of the beautiful, optimistic outlook of the promised land, but I love it because it shows the two instances in life where we are most prone to forget God's grace in seasons of excess and in seasons of of emptiness. Moses says when you get into the land and you look at that you're living in cities with walls you didn't build, houses you never laid a hammer to, cisterns you never dug, don't forget that it was God. Don't forget that it was God's mercy and kindness that brought you here. You see, sometimes we treat God like a one-time use life raft. And once we get to wherever we feel safe, we feel like we could step out And leave God behind until the next crisis comes. Once the sin seems to have quieted down, we can look a little more confidently at the idols in our life. Once we get the spouse that we know we've needed, we can begin to put on cruise control. But here Moses says, don't be deceived in seasons of plenty. Be humbly reliant on the God who saves or your heart will long after things which are not me. 
And then he brings up the encounter they had at Massa to emphasize a season of emptiness. Massa was during the wilderness wanderings, and the people of Israel began to whine, thinking that God had left them to die. God would not provide for them water, but then at Massa, God provided water for them. They doubted God's goodness, but it was God and his provision who cared for them. Do you find yourself in either a season of excess or a season of emptiness? And what is your heart towards God in that season? Because in seasons of excess, it is God's grace to humble you, lest you go after other gods, gods which will not care for you, gods which will let you down, gods which will lead you into punishment. And in seasons of emptiness, seasons of sorrow and of thirst, it is God's good pleasure to give you water, to give you exactly what you need at that moment to sustain you, to always provide for you a hope. God humbles us into security, and he gives us hope unto rest. Wouldn't we want to respond to this God in love? Did you hear what Moses is saying? Wouldn't you want then, if you see this, hum, this beautiful humiliation, if you see this wonderful hope, don't you want to share that with your roommates? Shouldn't it make life in your home distinct? Shouldn't it shape your dinnertime prayers? Shouldn't it uh, shape every aspect of your life so that you would be certain to build rhythms into your life where you will not forget this good and great God? See, we could spend an entire sermon talking about how we can model our lives, build our lives in such a way from family worship to personal devotions to coming to church that remind us of God's love. And you should do that. That is a great discussion you should have with your spouse, with your roommate, with your community group of what does it look like for our lives to be as distinct as Moses is calling these Israelites to be distinct. And as they become distinct, our children, our neighbors, and our coworkers will begin to ask us why our lives are different. And sometimes that'll be terrifying. But in every instance, it gives us an opportunity to answer evangelistically. To provide, as Peter says, a reason for the hope that you have. And look at how Moses wants to prepare them to do this in verses 20 through 25. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that our Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed his signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You see, our love for God makes our lives distinct. Sometimes those encounters of distinction, depending on where you are in Christian history, can be hostile. Sometimes they can be awkward and sometimes they could just be wonderful. But in those moments, we have the ability to express the wonderful grace and love that God has for us. You see, our lives show our love for God, but our answer shows God's love for us. That God's commands are for our good always. 
that if we obey, it might be counted to us as righteousness. That is a huge verse, not only in the scope of Deuteronomy, but in the scope of all scripture. The end of God's command is not merely life in the land, but righteousness. Why is that so important? Because righteousness overcomes the problem of obedience in our hearts. Righteousness repairs our, our broken, sinful, doubting hearts. It finally brings us in to where our hearts can rest in, Jesus, or in God's law. It brings us in to where we desire with all of our heart God's laws and we can obey seamlessly with him. The reward of the law, the hope of the law is that we might have righteousness to finally be at rest before God. That's what it means when He's saying to tell them, God brought you out so that he might bring you in, bring you into a right relationship with God, an exclusive relationship with God, wherein whatever comes, whatever happens in our life, we know that we have been brought back to God in a way where nothing can take us away. This law that Moses is giving is so wonderfully good and effective to do just that. But as we continue Deuteronomy, and as we read the Old Testament, we see that despite how good and perfect the law was, the people couldn't keep it. The law couldn't provide righteousness, not because the law didn't have righteousness, but because the people couldn't keep the law. You see, when we look at the Old Testament, when we see God talking like this in the Old Testament, we long after the end of the law. We want goodness. We want God's nearness. We want his righteousness. But we do not want the people's experience of failure with the law. And look at how Paul speaks of this in Romans 7, verses uh, 10 through 12. The very, is this where I want to be? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. When we read the Old Testament law, the law wasn't the problem. We were. We were broken. We could not keep the righteous, good commands, and therefore we could scarcely reap the benefits from it. And this is where we have the beautiful privilege of what Moses longed to see. Our last point, where we get to see the fulfillment of the law. You see, as we see lots of laws in Deuteronomy, we see that we need the law's righteousness. If we want peace, we need peace with God, and that comes through one thing. And so the question you face is, to get that righteousness... Do you need this law? Must we obey this law? Look at how Paul answers this in Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of flesh, of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
Hebrews, or Deuteronomy 6.25 might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do we keep the law? Yes. Through Jesus. Through Jesus. You see, Jesus did what we could never do in keeping the law. Our brokenness of heart prohibits us from ever pleasing God on our own. He lived righteously, perfectly. Every rule we will see defined in Deuteronomy, Jesus kept beautifully and holy. But then even more than that, Jesus did what the law itself couldn't do. And that was to take his righteous life and apply it to all who would be found in him. See, there's always this tension. What do we do with the law? Do we keep it? Do we disregard it? We do neither with it. We see how Christ has fulfilled it. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All the righteousness, all the goodness, all the long life. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. As we continue to roll in Deuteronomy, we're going to see detailed commands. And to keep those detailed commands means you get wonderful blessings. And we're going to see detailed warnings. And to not listen to those warnings is to receive curses and punishment. And when it says Jesus fulfilled the law, it means he did everything right to receive the blessing. But this is the beauty of the gospel. Is that he also fulfilled all of the curses of disobedience in his flesh. He got the blessing he deserved and he took the punishment we deserved. And that is the wonder of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus fulfilling the law, we get all the peace that the law was meant to bring us to God towards. That we would dwell with him, that he would be our God, that we would have, as Hebrews says, a greater Sabbath rest. And Jesus meets every jot and tittle of this law for us. Jesus kept the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And in this, we find rest. You see, it's only when we see that not only Jesus kept and Jesus fulfilled, but that Jesus applies the benefit of the law to us, that we can ever put aside fear, uncertainty, and arrogance and stand confidently before God. Look at how Paul speaks of this in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Why? Why does he want to gain Christ? And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Christ gives us righteousness. We have greater grace, which means grace, love, and obedience abound all the more. The greater grace, the weightier the call to obey. 
We see this, Jesus himself, right? We saw this in Mark chapter 12. Look again, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through, through 31. This is Jesus saying it. He's calling us to obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other commandment greater than these. Just because Jesus has fulfilled the law does not mean we have no obligation, no right response of grace to obey. In fact, the opposite is true. We have the blessing of obedience because for the first time, we no longer obey to be counted righteous, but we have been made righteous. We can obey. We can. And this is something that as we read Deuteronomy, our hearts are going to ache for the people of Israel, that they might have that righteousness not mediated through the law, but applied in Jesus, the joy which is ours. We must obey if we are to have received grace. If Jesus has struck you with grace, obedience is the right response. I once heard it said like this as we look at the tension between the law and grace and they compare it to English law versus the American Constitution. This is what I want you to have in mind as we continue to read through this law in Deuteronomy. Is that when the settlers came over from England... There were lots of laws that they didn't keep. Why? Because they weren't under English rule anymore. They were free from it. But then there were lots of laws that the American Constitution has that look really similar to English law. Why is that? Because they were good laws. Because they helped protect people. Because they helped civilization flourish. But even though there is great similarity between American law and English law, the authority is different, isn't it? We aren't under British rule. And the same is true in the law of Christ. Colossians 3.24, Paul says, that the, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by righteousness in faith. So now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the law. For all who are in Christ Jesus are sons of God through faith. You see, the Old Testament is just as much Christian scripture as the New Testament because it makes our hearts ache long and see that God was working for a greater righteousness all along. A righteousness applied to us by grace through faith. And so shouldn't we who have a greater authority, shouldn't we who have grace unthought of 3,000 years ago, shouldn't we be all the more willing to obey and shouldn't we be all the more willing to model our lives so as best to provide an evangelistic answer to our hope? So that when our children ask us, why do we read at dinner time, Why do we go to church? When your roommate asks you, why do you not watch these movies? When your coworkers ask you, why do you abstain from these things or practice these things? We might say to them, we were captive to sin, living under the burden of slavery. And the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. God showed his wonderful grace in the grievousness of sin by sending his son 
to give me his righteousness and take the death that I deserved. He brought us out of sin so that he might bring us all the way back to him. So we know. What do you know more clearly than Moses knew here? That God's commands are always for our good because of Jesus. That it will never do harm to listen and obey to this God. And being found in him, I have the peace of righteousness that comes not from my performance, but comes through Jesus himself, through faith. And so I can stand before God in peace and respond with joyful obedience. For Christ has come. May we respond to grace each individually as God has so purposed for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the law was grace. Beautiful, wonderful, restricting grace. But we were so immensely broken. And so we once were. By not loving God, we earned all the punishment of sin. But in Christ, grace has come with greater might. Grace that not only speaks, but grace which dies. Grace which changes our hearts so that we might be distinct distinct in the way we love you, distinct in the way we love those who are around us, distinct because there is nothing as distinct as the wonderful message of grace in the gospel of Jesus. So Lord, we pray for two things. We pray that we see that the only way to be made right is in a righteousness which is not our own. For those who are weary and laden with the work of performance and the fear of knowing that somewhere there is a standard that they might not meet. Show them that Christ has met it for them and that they might be wed to all of that righteousness, all of the good always, all of the long life in the land through faith. We pray, Lord, for those who have been struck by grace, that our responses will be as wonderfully distinct and wildly evangelistic as the people of Israel's. We pray that even more so, for we have seen a greater revelation of grace in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen.